0: Welcome back to New Books in the American West, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Hausman, your host and visiting instructor in the History Department at the University of Pittsburgh. Today on the show, I'll be speaking with Lincoln Mitchell, a writer and professor who teaches at Columbia University and has published several books on politics, on revolution, and on democracy. His political analysis has appeared in an array of outlets including USA Today, The Moscow Times, and the History News Network. And he also writes about baseball, and we'll be talking today about his 2018 book, Baseball Goes West, The Dodgers, The Giants, and The Shaping of the Major Leagues, which came out with Kent State University Press. Welcome to the New Books Network, Lincoln. Thank you
1: for having me, Stephen. It's good to be joining you talking baseball on opening day.
0: Yeah, it's exciting. Yes. Uh... Let's begin first just by hearing a little bit about yourself. Uh, Tell us your background and tell us a bit about how you became interested in writing and in political writing in particular.
1: Well, for the purposes of this conversation, one of the central things about my background and indeed my identity is that I was born in New York City and moved to San Francisco as a very young child, so have strong roots in both places. I graduated from UC Santa Cruz, and when I decided I wanted to do a PhD in political science, Uh, Stanford University and UC Berkeley, in their infinite wisdom, decided they didn't want me to do that. So I came to New York to go to grad school at Columbia. Um, And have therefore spent both, spent my life really divided half and half between these two cities. I spend about two months a year in San Francisco. I still, my mother still lives there. I still have a lot of friends. So a big part of my identity and part of what I tried to work out in this book through a kind of political science approach to baseball is the, the, this relationship between these two cities, and also these two states, California and and New York. Uh, I became a political scientist, and got into politics. I was raised in a family that where politics was just something we talked about all the time. It was always around us. You know, I remember handing out flyers in 1975 with my mother for George Moscone when he ran for mayor of San Francisco. The late the late George Moscone. Um, I was what, what used to be known as a red diaper grandbaby. I don't know if people know what that term means anymore. <laughs> but and, and I always, because of my love for baseball and the early age at which things like baseball statistics, you know, meant really had meaning to me. I mean, I was, you know, in high school in the early 80s, I was the nerdy kid who read Bill James uh, as an early adapter and told my baseball fan friends and the guys on the baseball team that on base percentage was more important than batting average. And they probably thought I was a little crazy, although I think I was right. And, and that, that mind for statistics translates easily into a mind for political statistics, polling data, election data. And so I made that transition. It, it seems very different, but in my mind, it was a relatively smooth one. And then, as I wrote my first three books about political transformations and democracy and revolution, what struck me is that a lot of what we study and I study in political science is institutions. How do political, political institutions, how do state institutions evolve, and how do they get undermined or, or destroyed or weakened, right? Clearly, if you study the Soviet Union and the former Soviet Union, you have to wrestle with those questions. So I wanted to bring that kind of analysis to Major League Baseball. And what strikes me is that if we look at the institution of Major League Baseball, uh, there are really two moments, I think, that are central to the making of modern Major League Baseball. One is April fifteenth, 1947, when Jackie Robinson played his first game with the Dodgers. And I think most baseball fans know about that. But the other one is April 1958, when the Giants host the Dodgers in San Francisco, when the first game on the West Coast is played, and baseball becomes a tr- Major League Baseball becomes a truly national institution. And one footnote to that that maybe older San Franciscans and older Dodger fans will know is that the Giants won that game, eight nothing, and the headline in the San Francisco Chronicle, which was the major and still is, the major newspaper out there was, we murder the bums.
0: Huh. Um, tell us a little bit more about your relationship with baseball. Uh, it sounds like you were a baseball fan uh, as, as a teenager, but did you grow up with baseball around the house a lot? Um, who were you a fan of? What is your relationship to sure. the sport uh, as an institution in general?
1: Well, I, I think, I mean, I'm saying this now it's, it's a public podcast, but many of the people closest to me in my life don't realize quite the degree of my obsession with, with baseball. Um, I've been an intense baseball fan for as long as I can remember. At, at this point in my life, the strongest drug I take is chocolate, but the addiction I've never been able to kick is, is baseball. And, and I mean that both in a positive and a negative way. It has I can't tell you how many hours when I should have been writing about political transformation in the former Soviet Union I've spent looking at 70-year-old data on baseball reference just to kind of center myself. Um, I did not grow up in a baseball family, particularly. My mother, I was raised by a single mother, and she had grown up in the 1950s in New York. So she was very much a product of this kind of golden age of baseball. Her father had moved to the Bronx around 1920, which, parenthetically, he always referred to as the country, because if you came from the Lower East Side of Manhattan, he was a first-generation immigrant, uh, born in America, a Jewish uh, from Belarus. Uh, the Bronx felt like the country. So he moved to the Bronx. The Yankees moved over there a few years later, and my family on that side remained Yankee fans for their whole lives, except for my, one of my aunts who became a Dodger fan because of Jackie Robinson. Again, they were very far left politically, and Robinson was, you know, was a very progressive thing to bring an African-American, have African-American playing in baseball. So she became a Dodger fan, but then the Dodgers left, and I was raised by a Yankee fan. But we were in San Francisco, and my mother, I think, aware that we were, my brother and my late brother and I, you know, we didn't have a father around so much. So baseball became a way for us to kind of become part of a larger culture, become part of what my mother thought was a more male world that maybe we hadn't had much exposure to. And the other thing is that for six bucks, we could get a cheap seat, bus fare to the ballpark and lunch. And if you're a single mother and for $12, you can get your two rowdy sons out of the house at ages, you know, eight and 10 for the entire day, it's a pretty appealing prospect. So she encouraged us to be baseball fans for that reason. Um, and I remember whenever we'd be really fighting with each other, which was all the time, my mother, in, in a great New York turn of phrase that really is only in New York, not in California, she would say to us, why don't you go out on the street and have a catch? Meaning, why don't you go outside with do baseball gloves and, and play catch? And, and more often than not, we did. Um, I played baseball through high school. I, I went to college at UC Santa Cruz, which is a, a great academic school. It's not a sports powerhouse. And when I got there, I transferred in. My junior year, a friend of mine from literally the Sandlocks of San Francisco said, hey, Lincoln, you should join the baseball team. I'm the center fielder. You could be the starting first baseman. I was, I'm left-handed. I'd been a first baseman in high school. And I said to him, if you're the starting center fielder and I'm the starting first baseman, I want nothing to do with this baseball team. And that was, uh, that was the end of my, my baseball career. But I remained a fan. I coached Little League uh, for many years with my sons. I have two sons. One plays college ball. The other probably will. So I've been around baseball more or less my whole life.
0: And what road did you take to writing this book? You talked a little bit uh, about how you felt as though studying baseball dovetailed well with your other work in politics and in revolution. But tell us a little bit more about what drew you to writing a book about the relocation of the Dodgers and the Giants uh, to the West Coast specifically.
1: Well, throughout my entire life, I've heard there's been two conversations about baseball that have always been ringing in my head and and the two or two comments and they don't really speak to each other but they also do speak to each other so I'll start with this one is that as late as you know 2016 17 18 and i suppose 19 you can go to brooklyn and hear people bemoaning the departure of the dodgers uh this kind of shoot O'Malley twice line do i do i need to explain that that, that line
0: uh yeah uh, maybe, go ahead it's a good it's a good line yeah okay
1: so so, so the, the, the kind of i think it's not in the best of taste but is that in the 1960s, the joke in Brooklyn is you're stuck in a room or on a rowboat with Hitler, Stalin, and Walter O'Malley, and you only have, and you have a gun, but you only have two bullets. Who do you shoot? And the answer is shoot O'Malley twice. And, you know, this is really startling. I mean, remember these are people who are, uh, this is the height of the Cold War, these are many of the people telling this joke had fought in World War II. Parenthetically, many of whom right. were Jewish because Brooklyn's a heavily Jewish borough. And the answer is shoot O'Malley twice. And that anger towards O'Malley is still there. It's part of the identity that older Brooklynites have. And on the other hand, I live in northern Manhattan. i a walking distance to where the Giants used to play. And there's almost no recollection of them. And older New York Giants fans are now San Francisco Giants fans. Older Brooklyn Dodger fans are Mets fans and hate the Brooklyn Dodgers. So trying to figure that out, because at the heart of that, that kind of shoot O'Malley twice mentality is a real misunderstanding about what actually happened. Whenever someone bemoans the loss of the Dodgers, whether it's somebody you meet in Brooklyn who's older, or frankly, whether it's Bernie Sanders running for president, or whether it's Doris Kearns Goodwin in her books, you have to ask, why did your family stop going? Right? There's a real kind of ugly undertone to why the Dodgers we're suffering. We're not making as much money as they could in Brooklyn, which is that the neighborhood around it changed from mostly what we would call ethnic white to African American, and a lot of white people didn't want to go to Dodger games anymore. That's not a popular sentiment in Brooklyn, but it is. A, it is an important part of the story. And the second thing that always struck me was that when I was a kid, when my mother would give my brother and I, you know, six or eight bucks to go to the ball game for the day. And I had another friend who was very close with us, and we'd always go, the three of us would go to the games together. We'd be sitting there watching the Giants, and we had become, by this time, big Giants fans. And there always would be older guys behind us, you know, at the ballpark, sitting in the row behind or in front or chatting with us during the game. And they would always say to us, you know, we had big league baseball here before the Giants. And for them, this was an important piece of the culture that they, as older San Franciscan baseball fans, felt they needed us as younger San Franciscan baseball fans to understand. And what they were referring to was the Seals, the San Francisco Seals of the Pacific Coast League. Now, there were Pacific Coast League teams in many West Coast cities, the San Francisco Seals, the Oakland Oaks, the San Diego Padres, which have no relation to the Major League San Diego Padres, the Los Angeles Angels, which similarly have no relationship to the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim today, and the Hollywood Stars. There were others as well. And today, when we speak about this, it's mostly described as a minor league. At the time, it was very much not understood as a minor league. It was understood as high-level professional baseball. People cared a lot about pennant races. When the Giants, when the Seals would play the Oaks, there would be doubleheaders where they would say, start in Oakland, play game one, take the ferry. I want you to imagine this. Ferries with all the fans across the bay to Seal Stadium, which is a, what had been a beautiful ballpark in, in downtown San Francisco, kind of south of Market Street. Um, and watch the second half of the doubleheader. So it was real part of California baseball culture. And, you know, what was happening back East was interesting, but only peripherally so. You know, and, and in most years, in the, say, 20s, 30s, and 40s, the Seals, the Oaks, the Angels were better than the weakest major league teams. They were not as good as the Yankees in the 30s, the Cardinals in the 40s, the Dodgers in the 40s. The Giants, Yankees in the 20s, but they were better than the Washington Senators and the St. Louis Browns and the Pittsburgh Pirates for most of those years. But, you know, there is a a story, a kind of a cliche that history is written by the winners. And when we look at this period in baseball history, it's not entirely true. The PCL has been written out of baseball history because they eventually did lose out. But the second piece of the book is that the history of what happened to Major League Baseball after the move, has also been written out of history. So we see the, last, the end of the 1957 season when the Dodgers and Giants wrap up their long tenure in New York as this moment of sadness and loss. But we never tell the rest of the story, which is that the move west by these teams allowed Major League Baseball to grow as an industry. It allowed it to become national. It made the competition better. And it played, a, importantly, made it become more global. So I felt it was important to tell that story about the development of Major League Baseball as an institution.
0: And this book is about uh, a lot of different things, but among those things is exploding some myths about baseball, and particularly myths about baseball's so-called golden age in the 1940s and 1950s. And to kind of get us into the book, you begin the book by talking about some of these myths and talking about how they are, in fact, just that, how they're myths. So can you tell us why you think people look back on that era, the 1940s and 1950s or so, with such great nostalgia, and then maybe a little bit about what the truth is about that era in baseball history as you interpret it?
1: Well, the first half of that question is, is very is key, and it's, not, it's, hard, it's important to think through. But there is a, I think there's, some, there's a truism that baseball is always at its best when you were between the ages of 9 and 12. Mm-hmm. And, and so for me, that's the late 70s and early 80s. And the teams, you know, the, the Phillies teams with Mike Schmidt and Greg Lazinsky and Larry Boa and Tim McCarver backing up Bob Boone behind the plate are more real to me than, you know, a very strong Phillies team today with Bryce Harper and Andrew McCutcheon, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So if you were a baby boomer born in 47, the late 50s are that era. So on the one hand, for a lot of older baby boomers, which who had a huge impact on the culture, this was the golden era. If you're 65 70 years old today this was the golden era and smack down in the middle of that golden era this very traumatic move happens so that's one kind of demographic reason um related to that demographic reason is this enormous uh the this changing of the demographics in new york city where a lot of second and third generation by then americans are leaving and going everywhere they're going to california they're going to texas they're going to arizona they're going to florida And they're taking with them the story of the golden age of New York baseball. Now, in New York City, it was a golden age. The extent to which baseball was dominated between the time Jackie Robinson played his first game and the time the Brooklyn Dodgers played their last game, you know, there were 22 World Series games in a row between uh, game three of 1950 and game three of 1954 World Series that were played in New York City, 22 games in a row, other than But other than 1948, at least one New York team and frequently two New York teams were were from New York City every year during this period. You know, people like Willie Mays, Joe DiMaggio, Mickey Mantle, Yogi Berra, Jackie Robinson, not just great baseball players, and they all were, but American heroes and American stars and American celebrities on a different scale, all were in New York. So as that New York energy moves outwards and those New Yorkers move outwards, they take this moment with them. And, and then the third kind of more soft, perhaps cultural reason, harder to really define, is that the late 1950s are seen as the, for, for older Americans for many years, as the last moments, the last time when America made sense to them. And there's, a, there's an ugliness to that, right? Because it was the last time, because in the late 1950s, apartheid was still firmly in place in the South and deeply, segregated, deep, deeply understood and p- racist. Mores uh, governed much of the rest of the country. But there was also, and there was also this sense of, you know, the, the, the kind of get off my lawn cultural approach, right? There was not craziness, drug use wasn't as widespread, there was more respect, it was a more conventional culture. So for those people, this is also a memory of that time. And I think that's that's at the key of this golden age. Those are all part of this golden age notion. The reality is that outside of New York, baseball was a mess. These the St. Louis Browns, who became the Baltimore Orioles, the Philadelphia Athletics, who became the Kansas City Athletics, were not even trying. Baseball itself had become a very frankly boring sport in many ways. If you were just going to watch the game in 1950, Dom DiMaggio, uh, Joe, you know, one of the DiMaggio brothers, leaves the American League in stolen bases with 15 the great pitchers weren't striking batters out. Baseball was a game of ground outs and home runs and doubles. And it just wasn't, it was not an exciting product on the field, but that's, but that's not something that we, we think about or understand, but we have data that shows that one of which was attendance was in the toilet. And I go into this in the book in, in, in great detail, but it was very common for teams to draw below 700,000 fans, teams below outside, outside New York. And, and other than the Milwaukee Braves, their first few years almost never drew more than more than a million fans. So it was just that baseball hadn't figured out how to monetize this new technology known as television. So they weren't making much money. And as a result of this, the product on the field wasn't good because the best play, why would you become a baseball player, right? Why would you go in 1953 and play in, for the St. Louis Browns rather than the San Francisco Seals, right? You could make more money playing in the PCL. They, uh, the, the Jackie Robinson had made his debut, but there was an, a... Almost accepted and widely uh, widely accepted agreement among the teams not to have more than three African American players on the teams, which means that you weren't bringing in the best players. Dark-skinned Latinos were counted against that number three, so you really hadn't taken advantage of the wealth of talent that was in the Caribbean at that time. There were, of course, no Japanese players, so you weren't, or, or Korean players, so you didn't have the best ball players playing on these teams. And and the single statistic that to me captures this as much as anything, is 22,000. And 22,000, roughly speaking, is the number of empty seats, the number of empty seats at the polo grounds when Bobby Thompson hit the shot heard around the world. Understood broadly as the most famous home run in baseball history. This extraordinary moment. It's still when ESPN or MLB does its countdown, the greatest moments in baseball history. It's usually number one, occasionally number two but there were 22,000 empty seats in New York City at the height of the Dodger-Giant rivalry. The winner goes to play the Yankees in the World Series. And so it's the ultimate New York moment, and it's the third empty. And that tells you really much of what you need to know about this golden era.
0: And it's interesting because people today often bemoan the fact, writers and analysts bemoan the fact, that baseball has become what they call a very local sport. But it sounds like it was much more local back in the 1940s and 50s in many ways than it is today, and much more of a myopic sport in many ways too. It's the
1: the paradox, if you will, is, and I try to get at this in the book, is that from an economic perspective, from a commercial perspective, baseball was a much smaller peripheral enterprise. From a cultural perspective, it was a bigger one. So that in 1953, 54, 55, you pick a year, more Americans could probably tell you who was playing in the World Series than they could today. You know, if you ask people, I, I did this on my social media feed. I said, and I, because of my work, I have a lot of uh, Facebook friends from other parts of the world. So I said, for those of you who are American citizens or permanent residents, can't, without saying who, can you tell me who play, who's playing in the World Series? And about a third of them answered yes. Um, about, uh, about two-thirds or so said not really. And then my cousins in Massachusetts screamed out, you know, in full block letters, the Red Sox, and the, you know, because they, they were Red Sox fans, <laughs> um, as, as, as one would in that situation. But I, if you had done that, Facebook didn't exist in 1955, but everyone knew it was who was playing in the World Series. There is, were players then in this golden age, Joe DiMaggio in the first half, Willie Mays in the second, Mickey Mantle in the second half, Yogi Berra, Jackie Robinson the whole time, who were household names and household faces and household identities in a way that Mike Trout or someone of that ilk or Bryce Harper is not today. So it was a bigger role in the culture, but a, but, but a smaller role in the, uh, in, in the business. And, and I just, I, I was having a dinner a couple of years ago with a very prominent historian who works on the history of San Francisco. And I was telling him, and he's old enough, he's managed in his 80s now, so he reman- he'd been to Seals games. He'd also been to game seven of the 1962 World Series. Not a big baseball fan, but somebody for whom it's part of the culture. And we were talking about this, and the Giants had come out to this great run of three World Series in a row, and, you, know, three, three, you know, 10, 12, and 14. If you count even years, it's three in a row, only even years. Mm-hmm. And, right. and he, he said, and this was interesting, because it was an older man, and it was clearly someone on the one hand, looking back, very much looking back to a simpler time, but also thinking back to his own youth, you know, as, as, one, as one's life gets into its later years. And he said, I liked it better when it was always the Yankees and the Dodgers in the World Series. And then he added, because he's a San Franciscan, and the Yankees always won. And, and, and there, there was that sense in the culture, although most people would have wanted the Yankees to always lose. But it was simpler. It was easy to understand. A World Series rolls around now, and it's the, the Diamondbacks and the, and the Yankees, and people don't even know who the Diamondbacks are, older fans. So the role of the culture has changed a lot. I think the difference is that now, because of the way we get information, it's much easier to go deeper into whatever team you're a fan of. And that's why it feels so local now. So if you talk to an Indians fan, they can tell you their 20 top prospects, but they don't know the starting catcher on the Cubs. And I I'm not picking on Indians fans. I'm just
0: making an example. Yeah. If you took someone, an adult, from 1950, from, from any baseball stadium, and you dropped them into a baseball stadium today, what do you think the biggest difference is that they would notice in the game itself? I guess the larger question I'm getting at is how has baseball changed over the last – half century 60 70 years or so in your estimation
1: are we speaking about on the field particularly specifically
0: well we talked about we talked about baseball and the culture a bit so yeah let's talk more about baseball on the field what do you think has changed the most a couple between of we the the i think a few things come to mind right away one the
1: extreme diversity you would see on the field at a ball game and for me that's what makes that's what i love about baseball in, in this decade of the 21st century i love that when I go to a game, there's people who have three or four native languages on the field, you know, in the lineup, playing defense, coming to bat in a particular inning, four or five home countries. I love that I feel like, like Major League baseballs in this golden moment in many respects where we're getting the best players and we get to see them. When, when you see a team today, you're seeing the very best players in the world. So they would notice that, that difference right away. Hey, there's, there's no limit on the number of dark-skinned players on the field. Hey, there's an Asian guy, that kind of thing. The second thing they would notice is that, wow, those pitchers are big and they're throwing hard. That's something that was really not the case in the 1950s. The, the average, I, I don't know what team, you, you know, but we're thinking about, but, and I'm going to the Yankee game Saturday because I live in, in northern Manhattan, and I'm a Yankee fan. I'm my American League team because of my mother. And, you know, the fourth guy out of the Yankee bullpen is Adam Ottavino. No one in Major League Baseball threw as hard as Adam Ottavino in 1950 or 1955. Nobody. So that's the first thing they would notice. Uh, the second thing they would notice is, wow, these guys strike out a lot. Now, those things are related, right? There's Pitchers are pitching harder. Batters are striking out more. So, And then they might notice, wow, those guys, when they hit the ball, are really connecting. If you go and look at, at baseball footage from the early 1950s, there are two players who you could look and you say, huh, those guys could play in a major league team today and be pretty good. But that's Mickey Mantle and Willie Mays. Everyone else is doing things that, you know, a hitting coach a day would change in day one because you just can't get around on a good fastball that way on a, on a 21st century major league fastball that way. So they would notice that as well. And then as they watched the game for a while, they would say, you know, that guy at short, isn't as good as Pee Wee Reese, or that's the guy, whether he's playing second or third base today, Jackie Robinson had much better range than that. And I, why is that guy playing center field? Cause they were, you know, uh, Snyder, Mays, DiMaggio, if you go back to the late 40s, all were better defensive ball players. So so I think the defense has fallen off because the nature of the game has changed. Then as they watched into the second inning and they got to the third inning and they got to the bottom of the lineup and they kind of said, "Okay, this will be three easy ground balls and some number eight hitter hit the ball 420 feet, they would see the extent to which, you know, essentially lineups today in the American League have nine real hitters and the National League have eight. And that was not always the case. And in well into the 70s, most teams only had six or seven hitters in the lineup. So that's another way that they would see that it has changed. And then, of course, nobody, nobody, oh, would, throw, sorry, nobody would throw a complete game. So you'd get into the right. seventh inning, and they'd say, oh, so it's a new pitcher starting the inning. And then two batters later, they'd say, what's happening? Why are we bringing in a new pitcher? How many pitchers does this team have? Do we have any pinch runners on the bench? So all of that, the roster makeup, the extreme emphasis on changing pitchers at the expense of depth would probably frankly bore a lot of those fans
0: let's get into the history of the two teams in question here a little bit do a bit of a deeper dive into the Giants and the Dodgers can you tell us about them their 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 histories their relationship as um as two franchises in baseball going into the 1950s um and uh Yes. Well, we'll just leave it there. Then I have a follow up to that as well. So
1: these two franchises have played in the same league and in the same state for over 100 and, for about 130 years now, a little more. There's nothing quite like that in professional sports. And they've been rivals much of that time. Now, if we're going to I I don't want to go too far back, but let's start around 1900 just to keep the math a little simpler. In the first third of the 20th century, the Giants the New York Giants, not the New York Yankees, were the kind of signature franchise of American baseball. They were the team that was winning the pennant all the time. They were the team that had the first real kind of role model celebrity superstar in Christy Mathewson, the great, great New York Giants pitcher who you know won 373 or 374 games, depending on how you count, who regularly won 30 games a year who went uh, to Bucknell where he played football, but didn't actually graduate because he became a baseball player. Um, and was this kind of good looking role model who was, you know, con- conservative in, in, in his behavior and was a Christian and, you know, said to young men and boys, you know, work hard, P- famous book, pitching in a pinch is full of like kind of advice on how to be a person in the world. Um, good looking guy and a great pitcher threw three shutouts in the 1905 world series. Um, so the, the Giants were that team. Their manager, John McGraw, was – became – loved Matthewson, because how could you not love a pitcher like that? But was a much more feisty, tougher, uh, really kind of a field general, little Napoleon-type manager. But they were always in, the, in or around the, the, the pennant. Uh, the Dodgers during this time, in, in the early part of the of – the, until about 1923 or so, they were a decent team. They had some good ball players, Dazzy Vance. Zach Wheat, Burley Grimes, people like that. They won the pennants in 1916 and 1920. Didn't quite win the World Series. Uh, but, But the rivalry was intense because these, you know, from the polo grounds to Ebbets Field, by the time the two teams settled in those two places, it was still a 30 or 40 minute subway ride. Subway ride. This was very close. You couldn't walk. I mean, you could, but it would take a long time. But you could take a subway pretty quickly. And The Brooklyn, which had been an independent city until 1897, got incorporated into New York City, as now we have, you know, five boroughs in New York in 1898, but always was incorporated. Today, maybe it's a little different, but for many years was the less glamorous kind of little sibling to uh, Manhattan, and the Giants played in Manhattan pretty much the entire time they were in New York, which is unusual. The Mets uh, played in Queens. Uh, playing Queens after briefly playing in Manhattan. And the Yankees moved to the Bronx in 1923. So, so that was – they were the New York team in kind of all capitals. The Dodgers always were kind of this inferiority complex. Then in the mid-1920s, the Dodgers, from a baseball and financial perspective, fall off a cliff. And from the 19, mid-1920s to the 1930s, this is the age of the Daffiness boys. Their manager is Wilbert Robertson, who had managed the team to a pennant in 1920. But began to kind of lose it and became this kind of joke figure, and this was the the time of the famous, uh, the the probably apocryphal story. Uh, They're they're famous. They had a slugger named Babe Herman, who was a very good hitter, but uh, not the brightest base runner in the world. And once tripled into a double play because he he passed two runners on the bases, two of his teammates, as he was running out of triple. Giving rise to the apocryphal story of the truck driver who's driving along in Brooklyn in the 1930s, and he sees a little boy on the side of the, the sitting on his stoop listening to the ball game on the radio, and he says to the kid, "Hey, what's uh, what's the score?" And the boy says back, "We're tied at three, but the bums got three men on base." And the truck driver yells back, "Which base?" Right. <laughs> so, so this is that era of the Dodgers. Um, in the late 1930s, Casey Stengel manages the team uh, at this time. Before, as Warren Spahn, who played for Stengel with the Boston Braves in the 40s and the New York Mets in the 60s, once said, I played for Casey Stengel both before and after he was a genius, right? So, so this is Casey Stengel before he was a genius. Although, frankly, he was trying to do some very innovative and interesting things with the Brooklyn Dodgers. He, he is fired. Leo DeRocher takes over as manager and is also the shortstop. And in 1941, Leo DeRocher gives himself a day off at shortstop because he couldn't hit. DeRocher could never hit. And, and he brings in a rookie named Pee Wee Reese. And that's the moment where the Dodgers stopped being a joke. And, and we now think of Pee Wee Reese as the guy who maybe who supported Jackie Robinson when Jackie Robinson came into the major leagues and either did or did not you know, put his arm around him uh, when fans were, were yelling racist slurs at him. But we do know, but, but we forget that, that, that um, Pee Wee Reese was the captain of that team. He was really one of the greatest shortstop in National League history. And, and he played in every World Series game... From 19, that the Dodgers had from 1941 until they went to Los Angeles. He was really the heart and soul of that team. And once they brought Reese into that lineup, they were never a joke again. And and this is the period where the Giants, between 1941 and 1957, when they both eventually leave, come in and out of contention. The Giants have been very good through the mid-30s, or through the late 30s. They won the pennants in 36 and 37. Uh, but they're coming in and out of contention. They have some good years, some bad years, but the Dodgers are pretty consistently good. Of course, The other part of the story is that there was another team in New York at this time. You may know that. And and beginning in 1921, or beginning in 1920, the Yankees uh, fleece the Red Sox and they get Babe Ruth. And and they very quickly become the glamour, exciting team. They play the New York Giants in three consecutive World Series. They lose to them in 21. They lose to them in 22. Parenthetically, those two World Series were both played entirely at the polo grounds because they were sharing that ball field. The Giants got tired of this upstart Yankee team because John McGraw was very slow to adapt to the new baseball of the live ball era. He believed in the bunting and the hitting and running and the base stealing, not Babe Ruth hitting the ball 500 feet. So he didn't like the Yankees' style. The Yankees were becoming, in his view, a little big for their britches. They built their own ballpark uh, almost across the river from the polo grounds, uh, which was, became Yankee Stadium, and they take off and they become, of course, the the best team in baseball for the next half century, or next 40 years, I should say. So in 1923, they beat the Giants in the World Series. They beat them again in 36 and 37 in the World Series. They beat the Dodgers in 41. So by now, they're the team. But this brings us into the 1950s. The rivalry is is strong, but the Dodgers are in the ascendancy. And the Giants are clearly by now the third team in, in in, in New York City.
0: What is the context of this rivalry? Tell us a little bit about the setting here. What was New York like in the 1950s, and what role did baseball play in the city's culture?
1: Baseball played a huge role in the culture, because if it was a golden age of baseball, it was specifically in New York City. And this was a time, I mean, New York City in the 1950s, and I I have to confess, I was not alive in New York City in the 1950s, uh, but my mother was. My grandparents uh, lived here throughout the 1950s. I I knew a lot of their friends. Uh, It was something that was just kind of in the lifeblood of the city. It was a very exciting time for New York City in in many ways, but also time like most uh, of Great Transition. But I would begin by saying a couple things just to set the stage. Uh, This was the late 40s into the 1950s. Obviously, we've, we've just come out of World War II, and it was the height of American power. We, unlike most countries in the world, including most important and powerful countries, had not been devastated in bombing, by bombing in World War II. You know, our country was intact. We had great military power, great business power, great cultural power, and New York City was the center of it. This was the, the last h- real height of New York City's hegemony in commerce, culture, and in fact, baseball. So that was all, it was all kind of wrapped in together. But the city itself was, it was a fascinating place. As late as 1960, just by way of, of to understand and I think this, is a, this helps you think about it, as late as 1960, Yiddish was a more important language, a more useful language, I should say, in New York City than Spanish. Now, when I go out today, I have Dominican friends, and they know a few words of Yiddish because, you know, they may work in a Jewish setting, but it's not like it was. You can't go on the street and speak Yiddish to people. As late as 1970s, I remember my grandfather and grandmother would, you know, in the taxi in a taxi, in a grocery store, and they were not in a particularly Jewish neighborhood, but you could it was still that. So this is a period where that transition begins from what had been, it was also a period when New York was at its had its had but about 1950 and 1970 is the period when New York has the lowest number of foreign-born citizens because immigration really hadn't picked up after it began to be shut down around 1920. So it's a more it's it's in the beginning of the 1950s a relatively stable population of largely a lot of second and and first generation Americans who many of whom you know can speak English. Um, it is it the, it was um, heavily Catholic, heavily Jewish. That 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 hasn't changed so much, but it also was it was a place where where the where Brooklyn had the image of the, the mid-century image of Brooklyn was beginning to come to the fore, right? This kind of tough borough. It was the place where New York, you know, Manhattan was the city. So if you were from Brooklyn, you, you could, you know, you would very rarely come into Manhattan. You could have your whole life in Brooklyn and you might only come into Manhattan to go to a big museum or a big show. Or maybe if you were older and worked here, but you could just as easily work in Brooklyn. But it was also a time where, you know, I mean, I, 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 in 1995, this is a, an odd personal story, but I remember this, it, it was, uh, happened to be Christmas Day, and since we're Jewish, we were kind of doing Chinese food and then going uh, to Lower East Side for some reason, and we got lost. And we ended up on the Williamsburg Bridge. I was with my mother, and, who lives in California, and I said, oh, I guess we're going to Brooklyn now. And mother says, oh, I've been to Brooklyn in a while. And I said, when was the last time? And she said, oh, I'm probably to see a Dodger game. And and I give that example because for people from Manhattan, you wouldn't go to Brooklyn unless you had yeah. some really compelling reason, and that informed the kind of, of Brooklyn's view, Brooklynites view that Manhattan saw them as somehow, Manhattanites saw them as somehow inferior. And the Yankees, even though they played in the Bronx and are beloved and remain beloved in the Bronx, I mean, you go to the Bronx today, which is one of the, the most diverse counties in America, people love the Yankees there, you know, understandably. It's their, it's their team. But they were always too big for the Bronx. They were New York's team. So the relationship between the Yankees and the Bronx was not entirely comparable to that of Brooklyn and the Dodgers. The Yankees were New York's team because by now they were, they were huge and they were the stars. So that but, – but that rivalry was intense. I mean, remember, they played each other 22 times a year. There were eight teams in the league. So they were, it seems like they were always playing each other. And there were some very close pennant races. So the rivalry was intense and it was personal people. You know, it, it, I mean, it, it, when you talk to people who grew up in Brooklyn, who weren't Dodger fans or who grew up in other parts of the city and were Dodger fans other than Queens, you really hear the extent to which it was personal. It was intense. It was something they thought about it. You, you picked a side, you know, you were a Yankee fan, you were a, a Dodger fan. You were a giant fan and it kind of defined who you were, but it was also great baseball, great pennant races, the World Series felt like a New York City production every year. So it was, it was a great moment, for a great period for New York City baseball, for sure.
0: Well, let's talk about, then, that critical moment at the end of the 1950s. Um, based on everything you said, it sounds like all three of these teams were really institutions in the city of New York. So why, then, do these two teams, do these two franchises move to San Francisco and Los Angeles? I mean, the Dodgers had just recently won a World Series. And they seem like an unlikely candidate in particular for relocation. So how does this happen? You know, the
1: Giants had just recently won a World Series, too. They won the 1954 yeah, World yeah, Series, yeah. and everyone forgets that. Right. There were a couple of reasons here. And, and the Yankees were part of this in the following. There, there, were, there was both, the, if you will, the push factor and the pull factor. And the push factor was that, attended, that that the attendance trends were in the wrong direction. Within a few years of winning that World Series – the Giants' attendance is now at six or 5th or 6th, I have this all in the book, in the National League. The, the demographic changes, which when I described in New York, one thing I should say is that by the mid-50s, this begins to change. By the mid-50s, the African-American population is steadily climbing. You have large numbers of Puerto Ricans who are the first uh, Latinos from the Caribbean to come into the United States, or to come into the rest of the United States because Puerto Ricans are American citizens, and they're coming to New York. This is the, the port of entry for, for Puerto Ricans into the, United, in, into the continental United States. So the city is changing. And while many people liked it and liked the diversity, many didn't. So if you are doing a long-term analysis for the New York Giants or the Brooklyn Dodgers, You're saying, you know, our attendance is down, and the reasons that are driving the attendance down have nothing to do with the team we're putting on the field. So we can't solve this problem by simply being a better team. How could you be a better team than the 1950s Brooklyn Dodgers, right? We have a longer-term problem. The trends are in the wrong direction. Now, there is a lot of racism at various stages in that analysis, but that was the analysis. One thing I want to point out here is that there was a third team in New York And the South Bronx was also experiencing the same demographic changes that were occurring around the polo fields, polo grounds, which is now in Harlem, which was then in Harlem, and the Ebbets Field in central Brooklyn. And the Yankees' attendance remained strong, partially because it was easier to get from Westchester kind of directly, which is north of the city, directly into Yankee Stadium. But also, and, and the Yankees were very good, but their attendance was strong. But the other two saw this trend in the wrong direction. And and they wanted bigger and better stadiums with more parking. And Walter O'Malley, the owner of the Brooklyn Dodgers, who we've discussed, and Robert Moses, who was kind of the, the parks commissioner, but that understates the power he had in creating the physical infrastructure of New York City, went back and forth negotiating over what that ballpark would look like. O'Malley wanted a major downtown, uh, a ballpark in downtown Brooklyn, the state of the art, which is now more or less where the... The Brooklyn Nets, if you're familiar with those listeners who might know uh, basketball in New York, near where they play now. And it would have been state-of-the-art with a lot of parking. Um, what well, Robert Moses proposed putting it in Queens, in eastern Queens, and with the idea that if you put a team in Queens, you would get Brooklyn fans from Brooklyn, Queens, and Long Island, where the population was growing, and a lot of suburban people from Brooklyn had moved, and they could all come to the games. And O'Malley... And a lot of people who are kind of apologists for O'Malley or critics of Moses, who is a, who did some really bad things in New York, um, say, well, this, you know, they wanted it to be the Brooklyn Dodgers, not the Queens Dodgers. But, of course, not far from where uh, Moses proposed that ballpark is where the Mets have played since the mid-1960s for the exact same reason that if you were going to put a ballpark, that's where you would put it. But but so they couldn't – so those were the push factors. They couldn't agree on a solution here. But the other thing was that Los Angeles was at that time the third largest city in America, poised to become the second largest city in America, and they wanted a baseball team. And anybody who understood finance, sports, business, anything knew that the team that got to L.A. first, if it was a good team that could kind of supplant the memory of the PCL, would make a lot of money. So we think so much of what happened in New York, but there's the other side of the story. The West Coast, West Coast wanted baseball teams, right? These were two West Coast cities. If you're the mayor of, of, of Los Angeles, Norris Paulson, the mayor of Los Angeles, saying, why don't we have a team? Why does, you know, at this time, well, Philadelphia only had one then, but, they, you know, there was still smaller, you know, Kansas City has a team by now. Baltimore has a team. Los Angeles doesn't have a baseball team. So they wanted it, and they were prepared to help facilitate that move. And Walter O'Malley saw dollar signs. I can make a lot more money in Los Angeles. Now, interestingly, this is such a persuasive argument that in the early 1950s, one of the rumored teams that would be going to Los Angeles would be the Yankees, who were the most successful financial team in baseball. But even for them, the opportunity for LA was appealing, was was intriguing, I should say. They ended up not going. Uh, Interestingly, as early as 1941, this idea of moving a team to Los Angeles was being explored, and one of the teams... Uh, that explored moving there was the St. Louis Browns who were, you know, falling a the terrible team. Although they did manage to sneak in one pennant in 1944, but the St. Louis Browns, the American league actually voted to approve a move of the Browns to St. Louis, uh, to from St. Louis to Los Angeles. But the problem is they made that vote on December 6th, 1941. Wow. And as you can, as you know, it's a cliche to say that everything changed the next day, but in this case it's, it's true. So that that was put on the back burner. Um but but to fast forward to 1950s 50, late 1950s O'Malley wanted to bring the team to Los Angeles and but he valued the rivalry. And he had this vision of let's transplant the rivalry to the West Coast and Stoneham, who was Horace Stoneham the owner of the Giants, which was the least successful of the three teams in in the West in uh in New York, he was looking for an option also. Now now if 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 Horace Stoneham had moved the Giants to Minnesota, as had been explored in the mid-50s, the Dodgers and Yankees probably could have both survived in New York. But O'Malley wanted to go to Los Angeles. Stoneham, he said to Stoneham, hey, why don't you go to San Francisco? It's a great baseball town, which it was. It's, you know, it's uh, a—we will have the rivalry out there. It's sunny California, which it wasn't. Um, And so that's how the move kind of came together. And then, of course, the Giants— Wanted the city of San Francisco began to court the Giants in some respects because if LA was going to have a team, San Francisco was going to have a team also. The difference is that the Giants, the Seals were more beloved in San Francisco than any of the PCL teams were in in Los Angeles. In an odd way, the Seals are to San Francisco what the Dodgers are to Brooklyn. Among older San Franciscans, it's part of the identity of an older San Franciscan. I'm old enough to be a Seals fan. I remember the Seals. That's part of our history. When you go to a Giants game today, you will still see Seals hats, jerseys, jackets, all of that at the ballpark. You don't see that for too many other PCL teams. So the Giants. Um, so there was there was a, a, a Save the Seals movement in, in San Francisco. People were saying, "Why do we want? Why do we want to get rid of a great PCL team and replace it with a mediocre major league team?" And. Uh, but but the move happened anyway, and part of that, that approach of why do you want to place it with a mediocre major league team, I, I believe spilled over into San Francisco Giants fans never fully embracing, at that time, the best player in the world the way they should have. And I'm referring to Willie Mays.
0: Well, that was sort of my next question, which is kind of a two-part question, I guess. Um, on the one hand, how did New York react to these teams leaving New York City? And then on the other hand, how were the two teams received in their new homes? And did they find success in their early years on the West Coast? Well,
1: New York – people in New York were furious and devastated and angry. And you know, if you go back to the Brooklyn Eagle, which was a daily newspaper in Brooklyn in 1955 when they, when they finally beat the, uh, the Yankees in the World Series – at the bottom of that huge headline about, you know, we finally win is Cashmore, Borough President John Cashmore, makes plea to the Dodgers to stay in Brooklyn. They were concerned about this possibility for a few years. But they didn't, but, but even the fans, like, had they just gone to more, had they gone to the games, had they voted with their pocketbooks, they would have had a more compelling argument. And that, and, but that anger and pain was felt much more by the, uh, by the Dodger fans than the Giant fans. And ultimately, you know, another team that that fits into the story is the Mets. The Mets come along in 1962 and are wildly popular. What terrible team, terrible team for a few years, but wildly popular because Dodger fans were never and and were never going to embrace the Yankees. It was simply never going to happen, right? You meet fans in New York now. I mean, I have friends who are Brooklyn, uh, excuse me, New York Mets fans because their parents were Brooklyn Dodger fans and they are never going to be Yankee fans. So the Mets filled that gap, but it was a real loss. Now we only have one team. We're the greatest city in the world. And it was also beginning this period where, you know, crime and drug use and gangs was beginning to creep in. So it was a kind of an almost I don't know it's apocalyptic overstates it a lot, but it was a feeling of, wow, the trend is in the wrong direction in New York right now. Um, in, in California, it was different. After Once, once people came to terms with this, this was, people were very, very happy. There were parades with, you know, people sitting in the back of huge American cars going down Market Street in San Francisco and similarly in Los Angeles. They embraced these two teams. They were excited about them. Remember, and I think this is important to understand, had you moved the St. Louis Browns and the Philadelphia Athletics to these two cities, it would have been very different. These are cities that have a tremendous sense of pride. San Franciscans and Los, particularly San Franciscans, you know, are still still old-time San Franciscans in the nineteen sixties still thought they were the most important city west of the Mississippi. We don't need the Giants to prove we're a big league team. We don't need the St. Louis Browns to prove we're a big league city, I should say. And Los Angeles felt the same. But because these teams were storied franchises, because California had taken them from New York, and because they were loaded with household names, Cofferillo, Duke Snyder, Pee Wee Reese, uh, a, a young Sandy Koufax, who wasn't Sandy Koufax yet in uh, in for the in the case of the Dodgers, and and with the Giants, really, uh, Willie Mays, who although I said was never fully embraced, he was still Willie Mays for goodness' sake. Um, so they were more—they were accepted because of that. And, and I think the genius of this move for Major League Baseball is to put good household name franchises there, forcing the baseball world to pay attention to baseball in California. Uh, and then, and then the second part of your question. These teams are very good once they get out there. They, they, 58 is a tough year. The Giants do well. The Dodgers don't. But in 59, the Dodgers win the pennant, a kind of a a, a, a team that's patched together with some good pitching and some lucky breaks. They get in a—they end the regular season tied with the Milwaukee Braves, who are trying to win their third straight pennant, and they beat them on a throwing error by Felix Mantillo. Some say a fielding error by Frank Torrey at first base, uh, you know, to go to the World Series where they beat the White Sox where they beat the White Sox in the World Series. So immediately they get a world championship. In 1962, the Giants come, lose game seven, one nothing with a tying run on third and the winning run on second at the bottom of the ninth and a screaming line drive that Bobby Richardson catches from off the bat of Willie McCovey. So they're bringing high-level baseball. through From 62 to 66, these two teams are regularly in pennant races against each other. It's a, the, the center of baseball gravity moved with the Giants and the Dodgers from New York to California. And in the mid-60s, this is clear. And the two people that are at the center of this, I believe, are Sandy Koufax and Willie Mays, the best pitcher of the era and the best player of the era, and larger-than-life baseball figures. People who are listening to this podcast that don't pay any attention to baseball are going to know who those two guys are. And, And significantly, people from demographic groups that were very important. Willie Mays by the mid 1960s for in some ways very important. Willie Mays by the mid 1960s is the longest tenured African-American player in baseball. So has an enormous status in that, in that regard and is, and, and is electrifying for African-Americans nationally and, and, and shows that the best player in baseball unequivocally, I mean, Jackie Robinson was a great player. He won an MVP that he deserved in 1949, but to say with full stop the best player is an African-American guy, Willie Mays, that was, that was important. I'm um, also a, a man who, who played with such grace and beauty and made the game look beautiful and fun. And, and anyone who, who has worked with Willie Mays on a baseball field brought great intellect to the game. People don't always give him credit for that. I suspect there's a racial reason for that. But Willie Mays is a very smart ball player. And as we know now, because he, he's still alive, a very decent person. You know, it's easy. Willie Mays was not scandal-ridden. The scandals around Willie Mays were, you know, nobody would sell him a house because of the color of his skin. Well, that's not his fault. That's someone else's fault. So he was a really decent, great face for the game and great face for the game in California. And of course, Sandy Koufax was Jewish, which, and he's, you know, Hank Greenberg had been a great Jewish ballplayer too. But Koufax in LA, in the age of television, uh, at a time, so, so those two guys, really helped bring the center of gravity of baseball for this period to California. You couldn't pay attention to baseball in the 1960s without paying attention to baseball in California. When Koufax was pitching against Juan Marichal, whether in Los Angeles or San Francisco, that was the most exciting thing happening in baseball that day. When Koufax and Willie Mays batted against each other, excuse me, when Koufax pitched to Willie Mays, that was the most exciting matchup in all of baseball. And it happened at that time, 18 times a year. So, there was a lot of excitement around that.
0: Right. As you, as you just alluded to, um, the the Giants and the Dodgers, they remain both National League teams. And as you said before, they had a pretty intense rivalry on the East Coast. Does this rivalry transfer with them to the West Coast? Did well, the rivalry change I, 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 at all after they had moved? My,
1: my New York friends might not like this, but I will answer that truthfully and say it got much more intense on the West Coast. Mm-hmm. And the reason is they were... In pennant races, more frequently. And the reason is the rancor between Los Angeles and New York is probably more intense than that between Manhattan and Brooklyn. I mean, you know, I, I recently was in Los Angeles for a few days doing some interviews uh, for my next book or for yeah, my, my book after my next one that I'm starting now. And some, I had some things with my son and took a little vacation. And the truth about Los Angeles, and I'll say this on your podcast, it's a great town. There's great restaurants. There's a few fun neighborhoods to walk around. There's great beaches. There's a really cool diversity and nice vibe. But if my friends in San Francisco are going to – like if they listen to this podcast, they're going to get angry at me for saying that. That's how much – that's how intense it is, right? I was brought up being told that you were supposed to know the difference between Los Angeles and yogurt. And do you know what the difference is? Yogurt has culture. That's what we were taught. Like these cities hate each other. Not only that, but they really hate each other today in two different languages. We hate each other in English, and we hate each other in Spanish. And you go to the ballpark, and that rivalry is fully immersed in the bilingual culture of California, which is very exciting. But that bilingual culture also makes it possible for the Giants, particularly, to be on the cutting edge of bringing in Dominican and Puerto Rican players in the late 50s and early 60s and revolutionizing the game of baseball. And that's a lot easier to do in California than it would have been in New York in the late 50s and 1960s. To go back to my point about Spanish and how it had not yet become an important, the Latinos are simply not as numerous there at that time. The rivalry is, is, is super intense in the 1960s. I mean, the most famous and dramatic fight in baseball history is uh, the Marischal Roseboro fight. And I don't want to get too into that because it's not a happy moment in baseball, but Juan Maréchal, a Hall of Fame pitcher, really one of the three probably greatest pitchers of, of that era, along with Gibson and Koufax, smashed his bat on the head of Johnny Rosebart, the catcher uh, for the Brooklyn Dodgers, who had been throwing the ball on the on back to Koufax and nipping the ear of Juan Maréchal because Koufax didn't want to plunk Maréchal. So they say, right? This is as intense as baseball fights get. I've watched baseball for ha- almost half a century. I've never seen... On on a pickup softball field, on a high school baseball, major league, minor league, college. I've never seen anyone do that. I've seen the videos of of Marshall doing that. That's how intense the fight was. It was so intense that Giants fans to this day will tell you Marshall was right. That's how intense it was. Not all Giants fans were many. Maury Wills, at this period, who at this time was the great shortstop for the uh, Los Angeles Dodgers, he told Wes Parker, the first baseman, he says, Listen, if Mays hits the ball into the gap and it's going to be a triple, just grab his belt. When he runs around first, no one will be looking at They'll all be looking at the ball. I mean, that was, that was an intense rivalry. People hated each other. And it goes, I mean, sometimes it gets very ugly, right? Brian Stowe uh, was almost killed in the parking lot opening day of 2011 in Dodger stadium because he was wearing a Giants jersey. There's a, you know, you know, if, I mean, when I was a kid at Candlestick Park, if you wore Dodger stuff into the bleachers, you know, you're going to get a beer bottle smacked over your head. This is not by me. Um, but, but this was an, this is and was an intense rivalry that got more intense as it moved west and as they and now with this the way the schedule works they continue to play each other a lot. You know when the Giants were having that great run where they were winning the World Series, um, those they were in you know they were in a race with the Dodgers and it was intense. And even when the Giants would maybe get to this later during the really bad years for the Giants when they were terrible, the rivalry kept the franchise afloat. There were years in the '70s when you'd get. You know, I think in 1976, they drew 100,000 people in their first opening series, yeah, 76, against the Dodgers, and about 700,000 all year. If they didn't have the Dodgers to play against during the really bad years for the Giants, they might have they left San Francisco, or they probably would have left San Francisco. So the rivalry was super intense and super important for these teams and remains so today.
0: Well, that is, in fact, my next question, because uh, after they find some success in the immediate years after the move, once the dust settles after the relocation, these two teams have pretty divergent paths through the 1960s and 70s and up through today even. So can you tell us a little bit about what happens after the move and tell us about the fortunes of the Dodgers and the Giants during the second half of the 20th century?
1: Well, this begins to change probably... Around 19, so after 1966, when the Dodgers win the uh, lose the World Series to the Baltimore Orioles, the Dodgers and Giants are both kind of decent until about 69, and then things go in very different directions. The Dodgers rebuild; they begin to draft a number of very very strong players, and they're back in the thick of things. The Giants win one last division in 1971; they won the division title. They got swept by the Pirates in the NLCS, I believe they got swept. They lost the Pirates in the NLCS. But the Dodgers, by the mid 70s, are back. They're in the World Series 74. Uh, 77, 78, 81, and the real rivalry in the late 70s from the Dodgers' perspective was with the Reds, the big red machine. The Giants, the problem with the, the Giants had, and you can't talk about the Giants in San Francisco without talking about this, is that is Candlestick Park. Candlestick Park was the ballpark that was built because Seal Stadium didn't have the capacity to hold enough that you would want for a real major league team. So they built Candlestick Park, which is one of the first multi-use football baseball stadiums out in Candlestick Point which is on the southeast in the southeast part of San Francisco on a spit of land where the wind off the bay is just brutal and it was a terrible place to see a ball game now the the, the bright side is it was so hard to get to that many people didn't bother to go anyway but once the team stopped being good the idea of watching mediocre baseball you know either a 40-minute drive from downtown or an hour and change bus ride in, a, in, in, in climates that once the sun went down, you dressed for Candlestick Park, and I'm not exaggerating, in August, the way you dressed for Winter... Well, the way I dressed, I dressed for Candlestick Park in August at night, the way I dressed for visiting my grandparents in New York in December. That's how cold it was. And this had a lot of effects. Attendance was down, which meant revenue was down, which means they couldn't keep up, right? Once free agents started, no free agents ever wanted to come to the Giants as long as they were playing in Candlestick Park. Particularly, particularly hitters, because it was such a terrible place to hit. You know, I think Willie McCovey and Willie Mays, between them, probably left 100 home runs in the winds of Candlestick Park and blew back into some outfielder's glove between them. It's a terrible place to hit, a terrible place to watch the ball game, and a terrible foundation from which to generate revenue. And from about 1976 until 1992, the question of can— not, not, not will the Giants win the pennant, because they did win one pennant during this period— but will the Giants stay in San Francisco? And this is part of what I'm working on for, for my next book, was never far, was, was, old, was never, you, you never went three months of reading the sports pages without reading that story. In January of 1976, I'll give one example because it's a very illustrative one. January uh, 10th of 1976, the Toronto Star, which is the major newspaper in Toronto, I think even now, runs about five or six articles of Giants coming to Toronto. Horace Donham has sold the team to the Labatt Brewery Company. This is where they'll be playing. This is what their lineup looks like. This is how much tickets are going to be. This is super exciting for the city of Toronto. That was the headline in the newspaper January 10th. Now, by way of uh, perspective or to make the story interesting, on January or context, on January 8th of 1976, so, so two days before this newspaper, but a day before the event, a new mayor was sworn in. Right. So, I want you to imagine having won the most competitive mayoral election in New York, in San Francisco history, right, by fewer than 4,500 votes on a kind of radical left wing platform, is sworn in, and also an all city basketball player who is a sports fan. And imagine you have this, t- you, you're like all good politicians, and he was a good one, you're thinking about reelection, and you don't even know where the men's room is in City Hall. On day two, the Giants are leaving. Not the Giants might leave. They've been sold to Toronto. And what do you do? Well, you can't be the guy that loses the Giants. You're not going to get reelected. You only won by 4,400 votes the first time. And and Mayor Moscone, uh, who I mentioned earlier, George Moscone, who had come in with all these ideas and actually in his three years in office did some very, very good things, I think. But he took the first two, three months in office and had to save the Giants. And he worked overtime. And including making sure that the case to get the injunction got before of a judge who he knew through his networks in, in San Francisco and was a real San Franciscan and would support it. And he found somebody to buy the team. And basically, Bob Lurie, who was a, uh, a real estate magnate and a longtime San Franciscan, came up and said, I'm in for $4 million. This is half of what it costs to catch a team. Find me a partner. And they found him a partner. And Lurie was able to keep the team in San Francisco for 16 years before he finally sold and, the, and remained in San Francisco. But four times – In Northern California, an initiative for a new ballpark went on the ballot. Four times it lost. And so the struggle to stay in San Francisco is making it very hard to succeed on the field, and particularly between the period of 1976 and 1985, with the exception of 1978 when they had a really fascinating year. um, It is a team that is, the, the farm system that produced Mays, McCovey, Marichal, the Alou brothers, guys like George Foster who are winning MVPs in the 70s for other teams, has completely dried up uh they are making trades like George Foster for Frank Duffy that are or Gaylord Perry for Sam McDowell that are you know not winning themselves any fans or any baseball games and the team is a mess meanwhile the Dodgers have become the baseball equivalent of the Dallas Cowboys this is America's team we've got our good looking republican first baseman in Steve Garvey you know we've got this infield that stays together cuz we're stable And we're we're secure and we're All-American, not like those money-grubbing New York Yankees who happened to beat us in the World Series twice in a row. And I will allow your listeners to parse that because that was the language at the time. When we associate money and things from New York together, there's a subtext. And I believe that is always part of the subtext of the hatred of the Yankees. Um, But so there was this real – the Dodgers were good. They were stable. They were All-American. And the Giants were a mess. And that was the story in the 70s and 80s. Now, I'm skipping over important pieces of this. You know, the the, the Dodgers' own difficult history uh, with building a ballpark, with alienating the Mexican-American community who had lived in the neighborhood of Chavez Ravine. If you're moving a team to Los Angeles and you're seeing the dollar signs, starting out by alienating Mexican-Americans probably isn't the best move. This is in the early 1960s. But then, of course, Fernando Valenzuela's great years in 1980, 81, and through the 80s changed that. So there's there's a lot that's happening there. And then the Dodgers have their own ownership problems, and, and by this decade, they have a pretty good team on the ball field. But, but you know, I mean, if you, had, if you had this year's Giants against, you know, the 1998 New York Yankees, and Mattingly was managing the Yankees, and Bochy was managing the Giants in a seven-game series, I'd probably bet on Bochy. So the Giants, even though on paper were not as good as the Dodgers during their run, they had the better manager, and that helped a lot, and that evened the score. So, you know, both of these teams won three World Series in a relatively short period of time after the move to California. It just took the Giants more than half a century to begin doing that.
0: Hmm. So to begin to, to wrap up a little bit here, what do you see, to kind of summarize the book a bit, what do you see as the legacy of the move to the West Coast by the Giants and the Dodgers? How did it change it baseball? It baseball a lot of ways.
1: Let, let me try to go through them. One is... It made it clear that it was a business. Decisions were going to be made on a business sense. And today we don't think twice about that. We need to build a new ballpark, not because the old ballpark's bad, but because we can make more money with a new one. And if we don't get the tax breaks, we might move to another city. That's now normal, right? This was the first time that a really good, beloved baseball team made that, made that gesture. And the next time we hear a team, whether it's, and I'm picking teams now randomly, the Cardinals, the Yankees, whomever, that do that, This goes back to that. So that's one legacy. Another legacy is that Major League Baseball, MLB, if you will, is now, in many more people's minds, equals baseball. And I use those terms in this conversation almost interchangeably. Major League Baseball, Baseball, Big League Baseball. But they're different things. Major League Baseball's hegemony over high-level Baseball, non-scholastic baseball, leaving high school aside, college aside, is starts with this move because the victims of this move are the PCL, which was a kind of a four A sem by the late fifties, largely affiliated but very high level minor league minor league minor league that people cared about, semi pro baseball, the last of the Negro leagues, and and increasingly strong leagues in the Caribbean, all all, all wrap up because. Of, the, of what begins with this move. So that's another one. Baseball becomes truly national. Within a decade, well, within 15 years, there are now, well, in, by 1969, there was a team in Seattle, albeit for only one year, San Diego, Oakland, another team in the Los Angeles area, the Angels, two teams in Texas, right? So it becomes truly national in a way that it had never been before. And it wasn't obvious it was going to become that way because there was also discussion in the 40s about making the PCL a third major league. But this is how it happened. The Major League Baseball hegemony. Another piece is the internationalization. So I talked about Fernando in, a, in perhaps an abbreviated way. But we could also need to talk about Hideo Nomo, who was the first Japanese star. Now, it's not just Japanese star in the United States. It's not just coincidence that these guys play for California teams. A great Mexican player in 1980s, early 80s, playing for the Milwaukee Brew, Teddy Higuero was a great pitcher. Is not going to mean as much to the culture, to the Mexican-Americans as somebody doing it for the Dodgers. So, and, and also the Dodgers aren't, no team is going to spend as much time finding that player as the Dodgers because of the potential revenue it could generate. Hideo Nomo, you know, many, many Japanese players, particularly back then, want to be on the West Coast. It's closer to home. There's larger Japanese-American uh, populations. But you can't talk about Hideo Nomo without talking about Masanori Murakami, who was the first Japanese player, who played in 1964 and 65 with the Giants. Incidentally, Murakami got the save in the Roseboro game. He was the last pitcher the Giants brought in to get the final two outs. But Murakami came to the Giants in 64. 64 is less than 20 years after, fewer than 20 years after the conclusion of World War II. I don't think you could bring Murakami and have a player be, be liked and have fans in many American cities at that time. But in San Francisco, where there's a large Japanese-American community around, uh, around the Bay Area and around Northern California, it was much easier. They were families that were happy to have him, happy to take him in, happy to feed him, happy to incorporate him into their social lives. They could bring fans to the ballpark. So it became more global. And then, and then to, to go back earlier, you know, Ozzy Virgil Sr. was the first Dominican-born player. He played for the New York Giants. But he had grown up in, uh, in the Bronx. The first guy kind of born and raised in the Dominican Republic to play – in the major leagues, was Felipe Alu, who played for the Giants. And the Giants had scouted the the Dominican and Puerto Rico more aggressively. They did not hesitate to bring in dark-skinned Latinos from those regions. Orlando Cepeda, who for many, who in the early years was, well, not the all-around player, was a better hitter than than Roberto Clemente. was the best Latino hitter. The Alu brothers, Juan Marichal, the list goes on. And, And the move helped baseball break out of this kind of northeastern, midwestern, white world into a larger one. So there, there are many, m- much of a legacy of that, of that. There are many ways to see the legacy of that move.
0: You've alluded a couple times in this interview to uh, a new project that you're working on. Can you give us a brief preview and tell us what the next book you're well, working on Well, the is? next book
1: I'm working on, which will be uh, out in, in November, which is with Rutgers University Press, is called San Francisco Year Zero, Political Upheaval, Punk Rock, and a Third Place Baseball Team. And it's about San Francisco in 1978. And it's set 1978 in San Francisco, much of what, when we read about that year, it's, it's uh, we read about Jonestown, the, the, the tragic killings in Jonestown, and the assassinations of Harvey Milk and, and Mayor Moscone. But what I've done with this book, what i tried to do with this book, is to put that story in the context of what was really also happening in San Francisco. One is the rise of punk rock as a, and punk rock in San Francisco, very distinctly from, say, New York, where punk rock in San Francisco is deeply political and deeply involved in radical San Francisco politics of the time and the relationship between that and the larger political challenges facing the city, and also the Giants, because the Giants in 1978 finished in third place, drew 1.74 million people, more than any other team in Giants history other than 1960, their first year in Candlestick Park. And had they not done that, they very well would have left at the end of the year. And had they left at the end of the year, had you had Jonestown, the assassinations, and the Giants leaving, I don't think the city would have recovered. So I wanted to look at that 78 year in, and, and, and bring in these things like punk rock and baseball in addition to what everyone else writes about because I think it tells a fuller story about the transformations in San Francisco during that year. And really what I argue is that the transformations in that year, if you want to look at San Francisco today and understand it, the city where we have skyrocketing rents, you know, all this tech people, the tech bros as they're called, but we also have a lot of radical social policy. We have good living wage laws. That, that that hybrid comes out of 1978. So that's that book. That'll be out by Rutgers University Press, San Francisco Year Zero. And the next one I'm working on, so that's written. So the one I'm writing now is a book called The Giants and Their City, Baseball in San Francisco in 1976 to 1992. And the reason I chose those years is that these are the f- forgotten years in Giants history. You know, it's before Barry Bonds. It's before they started winning World Series. It's also after Mays, and, and Marshall McCovey came back towards there. And this whole time is dominated by are they going to stay in the city? What's the future going to be? But some very interesting changes on the, off the field in baseball, too. There's the strike. There's free agency. You know, analytics begin to come in. So I'm, I'm working on that book, too, and I've been doing some interviews and kind of doing some research
0: on that one. And my last question, since we are recording this podcast on opening day of the 2019 baseball season, I got to ask, who do you have in the World Series? This you season? know, I haven't I,
1: – I, I, I'm terrible at predictions. I'm, I'm the guy who went on a global television network ten days – about five days before the election in 19, 2016 and said, this election is over. Hillary Clinton will be the next president of the United States. So I urge you uh, to, take my, <laughs> to take my predictions with as, as healthy a dose of salt as, as you feel is appropriate. I hate to say... You aren't alone I'm then, sorry? Though. I know, <laughs> sorry. I know, but I... I said you aren't alone. No, in at least I admitted sense. it. And I then wrote a paper... Uh, yeah, I wrote an article funny. the next week saying how I got it wrong because I didn't want to be one of these people who said, oh, I had it right the whole time. I, you know, I didn't and I wanted to own that. Um, I think in the American League, Houston looks really good. Uh, so, so I'm going to say the Astros in the American League and, and the Astros to win the World Series. Now, the question of who they beat, I, I don't know. Uh I'm gonna say the Phillies. I just have a feeling that they're gonna that they're gonna go for it this okay. year. And if they have to make a move in the, in the July or so, they'll do it. And then I wanna make and my one surprise team is the Padres. I don't think I don't think yeah. there are some t- I think the story that Machado went there because the money and they're terrible. Of course he went there for the money as he should and is entitled to do. But the Padres have some good young players coming along. I expect them, I don't think they'll necessarily even make the playoffs, but I wouldn't be surprised if they pick up that second wild card space. I think they're they're looking decent. I'm not making any predictions about the Giants. But,
0: the National League is wide open this sure year. sure feels and, uh, that way. As a devoted Red Sox fan, um, I'm, uh, I'm pretty disappointed to hear you say the Astros, but they are, they are a great They're, team. Yeah.
1: So we'll, I mean, the, we'll Red Sox, the Red Sox and the Yankees, I think, had a similar philosophy, although you wouldn't know it in the offseason. The Red Sox philosophy was everything went right. We're just going to hope everything goes right uh-huh. again. And the Yankees' re- philosophy at the end of the day was everything went right for the Red Sox. It can't all go right again. You know? <laughs> and the Astros became a better team, so that's fine.
0: Lincoln Mitchell is a professor, a political analyst, and a baseball writer. He teaches at Columbia University and can be found on Twitter via his handle, at Lincoln Mitchell. He's written several books and articles, including his newest book, Baseball Goes West, The Dodgers, the Giants, and the Shaping of the Major Leagues, which came out just last year with Kent State University Press. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you. It's a
1: lot of fun.